If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. Sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of The Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of The Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Core Business Show. I'm Tim Jacquet, your host. Today, we're going to talk about, for the next two weeks, our release this week, about selling to the government. We're going to promote uh, several series throughout this week. Um, we we'll have to end up going through next week, and hard to get the whole series in. It's a lot of detailed information that if you're a business and you're looking for another avenue to sell things to businesses, me to the government, here's another customer, a very good customer that pays well. So anyway... We're going to take a break real quick, and we'll come back with the show. You're listening to The Core Business Show. I'm Tim J.K., your host. You're listening to The Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. Apple Capital Group in Jacksonville, Florida, is a commercial lender that specializes in asset-based loans, equipment leasing and financing, invoice financing, commercial real estate loans, and asset-based financing in the U.S. and Canada. Apple Capital Group is a direct lender that lends on their private equity investment portfolio. 90% of most loans are decided within two hours and vendor funding within 24 hours after documents are completed with a one-page application. No slow no's, just a quick decision and a fast yes. To get more information about lending from Apple Capital Group, call 866-611-7457. That's 866-611-7457 to speak with one of our loan specialists. Or visit us right now at applecapitalgroup.com. Welcome back to The Core. Once again, here's Tim Jacquet. Welcome back to the Core Business Show. So what I'm going to do is going to start. We're going to roll our uh, first interview. We're going to talk to a person. Uh, we actually recorded this some time ago, and I said, "Oh, this is probably good information that I can use for a show." So this is going to tell you the whole scope that you really need to know about selling to the government, selling to a local government, which is a city, municipality, or port or a transit authority, how to sell to the state, and also how to sell to the federal government. There are different systems that you, that's always in place for each, and you have to know the lingo. You have to know the procedure, how they actually buy things from the public. So go ahead and listen to the show. Uh, we're going to take a commercial break in between these episodes. Today's is going to be split up into probably around... Uh, six uh, six different 10-minute breaks. Uh, 
too many episodes that I did the interviews on, so we're going to go ahead and proceed with the first section of Selling to the Government. Defining your scope is defining what your business is and defining what you're actually trying to solicit to the government. Welcome to the boot camp, and we term it a boot camp because it is rather intensive. Uh, I went through boot camp myself. Uh, obviously, this is not going to be as intensive as that was, <laughs> but uh, it will be intensive. We're going to be we're going to be asking a lot of you. We're going to be asking you to put a lot of thought into what we're uh, presenting. So, on day one, we're going to help you uh, assess the opportunities. Uh, day two, we're going to show you how to do some of the marketing. And then day three, we're going to take you through some actual uh, bid situations. First of all, you have to uh, define the, uh, the scope of what it is that you're attempting to sell to the government or find out what the government uh, needs. Uh, and, and part of what we're going to show you in that is that the, the government buys everything. The government buys everything that any other uh, company, any other customer uh, buys. It isn't only aircraft and uh, aircraft carriers and tanks and so on. They buy cleaning supplies. Uh, they buy uh, services to improve their, their uh, business operations. Uh, they buy landscaping uh, uh, services. Uh, everything that, that, that is sold in the marketplace, the government buys. So don't think that because it's the government the federal government in particular, that you're not going to be able to address them, because you will be able to. We'll show you how to lay the groundwork to get to a decision maker within the government. Obviously, when you walk in the front door of an agency, uh, the first person you meet is not going to be the person that's going to decide that they want to use your products or services. You have to know who in that agency to call on. You have to know who the decision makers are. We're going to show you how to find out who that is. Then the, uh, the federal acquisition regulation. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a book like this. And, and when I went to work for the Navy as a civilian, uh, one of the first things they did was send me to a two-week course, eight to five, with homework for two weeks. And we went through the regulation page by page so that uh, by the time I came out of that, I understood what was in that regulation. It wasn't called FAR then. It was called ASPR. Armed services, armed services procurement regulation, but we'll, we'll have some more on that uh, also uh, later in the, in the sessions. And then we're going to show you how to do a uh, SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, uh, opportunities, and so on. And then we're going to show you how to analyze your organization to see what your organization is capable of and what kind of changes you might make to your organization to make it more uh, uh, viable in the government marketplace. There's certain things that you have to do in the government marketplace that are perhaps more restrictive than you would find in the commercial marketplace, and we'll show you how to, how to uh, work through those. We're also going to show you the uh, 
GSA schedules, General Services Administration schedules. Now, why the government has chosen to put the term schedule there uh, is beyond me because it's just contract. General Services Administration contract. So every time you see that schedule, just, you just read that as contract. And we're going to show you how to, how to use that schedule, that, uh, that contract, once you have it. You know, when you walk in to a uh, uh, commercial customer and you sell the customer and the customer says, yeah, I want to deal with you, uh, he'll write you a contract, right? He'll write on the spot. You'll be dealing with, generally, in, in many cases, uh, somebody, a decision maker in that organization, he'll write you a contract. Well, in the government, it's not going to work that way. So if they say, how do I get to you? You hold up your GSA schedule and say, here's the contract. All you have to do is issue a delivery order against them. We're going to show you how that works and how to go about getting one. We're also going to show you how to go about finding the business. You have to find the people in each organization that can make the decision to come to you, to, to buy what it is you're offering, what it, service or, or products. We're going to show you how to rework or, or create your marketing materials so that they're more effective. We're going to take you through the pre-bid process. Then in day three, we're going to actually run through an IFB. Now we're going to show you the difference between uh, the IFB process and the RFP process. And just to start off, the government regulations say that every procurement has to be competitive, except for, and then they list the exceptions. Obviously, there, there are exceptions, uh, public exigency, and, and when the bombs are falling, you may not have a chance to uh, go out in a competitive uh, situation. So there's a listing of exceptions. Well, in the, within that competitive spectrum, one of those is an invitation for bid, and we're going to show you uh, how to go through and read and respond to an invitation for bid. We're also going to show you then how to respond to an RFP. An RFP is, can be sole source or it can also be competitive. But it's not competitive in the same way that an IFB is. And we'll show you the difference as we, as we go through that process. We're going to show you also how solicitations get issued because that's, that's one of the things you're going to want to know when you go into a customer. You, know, you convince somebody that they want to deal with you. Well, then what's the process? that the government has to go through to get to you if you don't have a schedule, for instance, if you have to go through a solicitation process. So you want to know how they get issued, and also you want to know how those bids get evaluated. In an RFP situation, it isn't only the low bidder that's going to win. It's going to be best value to the government. And so you need to know what those criteria are that are going to be evaluated in that solicitation. And we're going to show you how to zero in on what those are and how to respond to them. There's also, there's always financial considerations to uh, performing a government contract. Uh, and we're going to have some words for you on, on how to do the financing, what kind of government financing might be available to you, and what kind of financing is available in the uh, commercial marketplace. And that's going to affect the, uh, the funding your future. And then we're going to show you how to, what to do to take the next steps. Once you leave this session, this uh, three-day session, what you should be doing when you, when you leave here to start to get that first contract. So first, we're going to define the scope. Understand what the government buys. Is that the government buys everything. So whatever you sell, the government is going to buy. Now, it's going to be very easy to decide if you determine what the government wants to buy in a certain situation, and it happens to be what you sell. I mean, that's a nice mix. 
the chances are that's not going to happen all the time. So you may have to look at what it is that you sell that maybe you can tweak, that you can do something a little different in order to make it acceptable to the government. So we're going to show you how, how to do some of that. And then uh, we're going to have a, have a fair amount on the different type of solicitations. You know, I mentioned, already mentioned IFB and RFP and so on. Uh, we're going to give you a, a fair amount of detail on how to respond to those and what those are. You know, there's a, a bit of a mystique in dealing with the government. And it really isn't all that different from dealing with the, with the commercial uh, customers. There's, there's always going to be a different time period in, in getting to contract when you're dealing with the government. But the process that you go through, the marketing process that you go through, the way you sell yourself is not terribly different from the uh, commercial marketplace. And we're going to show you how to market to uh, not only the government, but to prime contractors. And we already have some experience here with some of the folks here who've dealt with prime contractors and also with other subcontractors. You don't necessarily have to be a first-tier sub in order to, in order to get a, a contract that's, that's, that's part of the government marketplace. You can be a second-tier, third-tier, wherever you happen to end up. Also, uh, the government fiscal year ends on uh, September 30. And while that's uh, certainly a, a point of, uh, of uh, interest in information, it also will show you how that can be uh, important to you. You've all heard the, the, that the government, if they, haven't, if they haven't spent their money by the end of the fiscal year, they lose it. Well, they get anxious as they get close to the end of the fiscal year. And if you've done your marketing, we'll show you how that feeds in in the future. Uh, also, the government has worldwide opportunities. I mean, obviously, right now, we have uh, a, couple of, uh, a couple of wars going on. And, you know, if you have a service or, or product that could be used in Afghanistan or Iraq, then you ought to be selling that uh, at this point. Also, for instance, the State Department has embassies around the world, and they use a lot of products in those embassies. And, again, you can certainly uh, benefit from, from uh, addressing the State Department as a potential customer.
We're going to take a station break real quick, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Core Business Show. You're listening to The Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. Apple Capital Group in Jacksonville, Florida, is a commercial lender that specializes in asset-based loans, equipment leasing and financing, invoice financing, commercial real estate loans, and asset-based financing in the U.S. and Canada. Apple Capital Group is a direct lender that lends on their private equity investment portfolio. 90% of most loans are decided within two hours and vendor funding within 24 hours after documents are completed with a one-page application. No slow no's, just a quick decision and a fast yes. To get more information about lending from Apple Capital Group, call 866-611-7457. That's 866-611-7457 to speak with one of our loan specialists. Or visit us right now at applecapitalgroup.com. Welcome back to The Core. Once again, here's Tim Jacquet. I mentioned that the timeline, the lead times for dealing with the government are often much, much longer than you would find in the commercial marketplace. And that's something that you have to be aware of as you start the, uh, start, start the marketing process. You have to be ready and able to wait that period and to continue the marketing effort during that period until you get to a contract and not get frustrated and, and so on as you go down the line. As uh, it's probably apparent, the federal government is the largest customer in the in the country, and and uh, probably in the world, but it certainly is the largest customer in the in the United States. More than 327 billion dollars will be spent on government contracts uh, this year. 327 billion dollars, and a portion of that is specifically set aside. It's earmarked to be set aside for small businesses. And we'll go into uh, a lot more detail on how those set-asides work and, and who are small businesses and so on uh, with, in, later in the session. And so we just, this is kind of a gee whiz chart. Break that $327 billion down comes down to $10,397 spent by the federal government every second. 10000 10000 10000 $10,000. Now, that's obviously not every, that, that doesn't mean a contract for 10000 but it means 10000 spent on contracts. Obviously, some of them are large businesses or building aircraft carriers and that sort of thing. But a tremendous amount of that is available to be set aside for small business. And I'm assuming we're all small businesses here. The, uh, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, as I mentioned, uh, the uh, fairly large document, it says that for solicitations under $100,000, they are supposed to be considered to be set aside for small businesses. So the large business can't even respond. I will show you some more detail on that as to how the government goes through the research to determine that there are small businesses out there that can respond. I mean, obviously, if there's nobody out there that can respond for what they're trying to do in the small business world, they're going to go to somebody that can. And in many cases, that'll be a large business. But if, if the research shows that it can be set aside for small business, then they have to do that. And I guess one of the points we're going to, we're going to be making as we go through, the government's market research isn't always infallible. 
Uh, however, if you've been doing your marketing, then they know there's somebody out there that can do those things. Then it isn't dependent on having done the marketing research. They know, they know your company can do this. And, you know, there's an old marketing adage that people buy from people they know. Uh, and I don't want to let you think that because you're going to get a GSA schedule following this three-day session that business is going to roll in, because it isn't. You have to market yourself. You have to market that contract. You have to use that contract, any contract that you have, as an entree to convince that customer that uh, they have a means. They, number one, they want to come to you because they like what it is you do. And they have a means of getting to you. Who are the policemen in these roles? What is, there's several. Every agency at uh, fairly low levels has small business specialists. And the, the whole process starts with the government writing what's called a procurement request, purchase request. It's, very, very, it's a PR. When that PR goes from the originator, which normally is a technical uh, type operation, it goes through a financial office, so it gets funded. It then, before it goes to the contracting officer, it goes through the small business specialist. And the small business specialist has to sign off on that. So one of the people you're going to want to make sure that you make contact with in every agency that you want to go with is that small business specialist. So the small business specialist knows who you are, and when that PR comes across his desk, he's going to say, yeah, there's at least one guy out there because he's been calling on me. As we mentioned, the government has very aggressive small business goals, small business set-aside goals. And, and their overall goal is that they'd like to see 39% of the overall procurement dollars spent with small businesses. That breaks down into a, a number of categories. Uh, overall, small businesses are 20%. They like to, to uh, have it. Now, we get down to uh, small disadvantaged business and 8A firms. They like to have 6%. The, uh, do you have any women-owned firms here? Okay. They'd like to see 5% of that $327 billion go to you. You get down here to the, uh, the hub zone and the service disabled uh, veteran owned. Uh, Greg is a service disabled veteran. This is mandated. 3% of those dollars have to go to service disabled uh, veterans. Veteran-owned companies. Now, hub zone is a category that isn't mandated, but is, is uh, it's a very significant one because the hub zones are historically underutilized business zones. And the government uh, would like to get business into those zones. And so in many cases, they'll go sole source if you happen to have your business uh, set up in one of those zones. Now, you have to actually have your business established in there. We're going to show you some more detail on that later on and then just plain that 2% uh, to uh, overall veteran-owned. So this gives, us a, this gives you a, a good picture of what these small business set-aside goals are. And it, it, we're going to show you later on that in addition to the government having these goals, every prime contractor has to, have, has to write and have approved a small business subcontracting plan as part of getting their prime contract. And again, the same thing. 
if that prime contractor knows you, that they're going to have you in that plan. And they get graded on They get graded on, uh, on how well they do against that plan. The contracting officers get graded on how well they do, how, how close they come to this 39%. And we're going to show you, too, that in many cases, some of you are going to have more than one of these categories. You're going to be woman-owned. You're obviously going to be a small business. You may be an 8A firm or a small disadvantaged business and so on. You're going, to, you're going to have a disabled veteran here. You can qualify in a couple of those. Now that doesn't, I don't mean to tell you that that increases your percentage, but it does make you more attractive to a contracting officer because contracting officers get marked on how close they come to these, uh, to these percentages. Well, if they can put you down in two of those categories, you know, they get a better mark. And the agencies actually grade their contracting officers on how well they do on this. And the subcontract specialist in that agency is, is right in the middle of all of that. If the subcontracting specialist feels that the small businesses are being ignored, he runs the flag up. So again, prime contractors are tasked with meeting these as well as the government. Now just as another G whiz number, 39%. Of 327 billion comes out to 127.5 billion. That's a lot of money that you're addressing, a lot of potential. I mean, think what it would be if your if your company is doing a hundred thousand dollars a month, uh, or a hundred thousand dollars a half a year, and you were to get a two million dollar contract. I mean, it's the the impact on your business is going to be dramatic once you get one of these contracts. Again, we just made the point. They, they buy everything from pencils to airplanes. Uh, probably nobody in this group is going to be uh, in the process of selling them airplanes, but you certainly could be in the business of selling them pencils. We're going to show you the, what the supply codes and the product service codes are for each of the uh, products that the government buys. Those are, those are uh, uh, going to be significant for you because it's going to tell you exactly where you need to be uh, uh, putting your focus. Who are the customers? The federal customer consists of 1,174 different agencies. And they're all over the country. And as I said, they're, they're, many of them are all over the world. Plus, you've got to come down to the, uh, uh, the state agencies. And then this, some of these contracts uh, that we're going to be talking about can be used down at the school board level. That's how far down this chain you can go in dealing with the government. And again, we already mentioned that the uh, large prime contractors have to meet these subcontracting goals. You're listening to The Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. And I spent, uh, they mentioned, 30 years at IBM. And one of my jobs was, uh, when I was a procurement manager, was to go out and, and meet with uh, small business uh, symposia and present what it was that we and IBM and that particular division, uh, the Federal Systems Division, were buying, what we were interested in procuring. And I told the attendees, the, the small businesses, I said, that's not because we're altruistic. It's because, number one, it's easier to deal with a small business than it is with a large business. I mean, if somebody came to IBM and they wanted to do something special, you know, we had to go to Armonk, New York, 
to get approval to do something special. When you're dealing with small business, you're dealing with the owner of the business. You want something special, the owner says yes or no. I mean, you know, you know immediately whether or not you're going to be able to do it. Also, small businesses are traditionally cheaper than large businesses. We had a case down in, in Houston when I was down there. I was at, I'm a member of National Contract Management Association, and, and we, uh, we had a, a session one time on, on using small businesses in dealing with NASA. And one of the companies, uh, Philco Ford, said, well, you know, I had this requirement, and I put it out to Joe Blow over here, and uh, he came in, and he was 30% uh, more expensive than what we could do it for in-house. And so I said to, said to him, how long were your folks working on that in-house? He said, well, we've been working on that for about 18 months. And I said, how long did you give the small business guy to bid that? He said, two weeks. <laughs> You can't expect a small, you can't expect any business, large or small, to be able to respond in two weeks to something you've been working on for 18 months. So I, I use that as an, as an example to say, number one, get in early on these projects. Do your marketing so that you have more than two weeks to respond. So you don't get sucked into something like that. And the guy justifies, well, I couldn't award to him because it's more expensive. Almost 95% of the time, the small business is going to be cheaper than the large business, and that's going to be to your advantage when you go to these uh, contracting officers. How do they buy? They micro-purchases are under $2,500. For those, you're, you're going to have to have the ability to accept uh, credit cards, and we're going to show you a little more detail on that. Simplified acquisitions uh, go up to uh, 100000 Sole source awards. There are sole source awards. They're generally in emergency situations. There certainly could be situations where you truly would be a single source or a sole source, uh, but it's not going to be uh, very often. But there are going to be situations where there's an emergency in somewhere in the country, somewhere in the world, where they're going to have to board a contract immediately. Sealed bidding is the IFB route, which we're going to walk you through that, and negotiated procurement is the RFP route. The difference between the two is that in a negotiated procurement, what they're buying is not cut and dried and there's going to have to be some discussions between the government and the bidders, and so they go through a negotiated procurement route so they can conduct those discussions and get to a best value, get to an understanding where they can get to a best value. Then you're going to hear all kinds of, uh, of uh, acronyms, uh, IDIQ, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity. When you get a contract like that, you don't have guarantee of anything. What you have is a contract that allows the government to buy if and when they get to the point where they want to buy. But they don't guarantee you any, uh, any business under those contracts. Government-wide uh, acquisitions and, and uh, multiple awards. The federal supply schedules are multiple award contracts. When you get a GSA schedule for whatever it is you're going to offer, uh, there's going to be at least one other company that has that same schedule. And you're going to come up against them in competition when you're... Uh, uh, attempting to get business. The government-wide acquisition contracts are generally awarded for items that GSA wouldn't be awarding. Uh, the GSA tends to be more the, the housekeeping, the across-the-board, ordinary, uh, standard commercial items. The uh, government-wide acquisition contracts would be awarded by somebody like somebody in the Department of Defense. Uh, they might be a, a particular uh, type of a weapon system or something like that where other agencies could uh, could buy off of that uh, GWAC contract 
for instance, the Air Force and the Navy might be buying uh, the same uh, aircraft. And one of them would be the lead agency for that aircraft, and the other, other uh, agency would buy off that same contract. Now, there's generally a, a fee associated where the, the holder of the GWAC contract gets paid a fee by the, uh, the other government agency that wants to use it. Chances, again, of, of you getting involved in a, uh, a GWAC are probably uh, nil. But you have to know they're out there. And it doesn't hurt you to know who has them because you certainly could be a subcontractor to somebody that has a government-wide uh, contract. And then we'll talk you a fair amount of, the, uh, of detail on the uh, GSA schedules. Micro-purchases, no competition required. You sell them that you've got something they want to buy for $2,500 or less, they can just give you an order. You can use a government uh, credit card. You get paid immediately. There's no problem with uh, invoicing or whatever. You know, you're paid on the spot. Simplified, up to 100000 Now, in that case, they're going to uh, uh, get quotes from uh, at least three people in most cases. They prefer to, to place those with small businesses, and in those cases, they're going to be either fixed price or time and materials. The time and material, we're going to show you a little more detail uh, later on as to uh, how these various uh, types of contracts work and uh, what you have to be aware of if you have one of those types. You have to be able to document the hours expended, you know, in a very, a very precise manner. You have to have a good uh, cost accounting system. And, and that's not a problem because there's a lot of those systems that are out there to be, be purchased, you know, off the shelf. Again, the, the question of sole source. I always like to say that the, the, the one that's not up there is having a friend in the White House, but, I, you know, that's a... <laughs> but there are a lot of situations where the government has, has maintained the shipbuilding capability in this country. It's because when the flag goes up, you know, and we need ships, we need a capability of building them. So they have kept uh, various shipbuilding yards mobilized. There's some that are uh, required by statute, for instance, a lot of very precise products need uh, jeweled bearings. Well, up in, uh, I think it's in uh, North Dakota, there's a small plant that uh, produces those jeweled bearings. And so anytime you have a contract, anytime anybody has a contract that is going to require the use of jeweled bearings, they're going to have to go to that, uh, that one location to get them. So there's good reasons for sole source awards. But you're probably not going to be in too many situations early on where you're going to be uh, getting a sole source award. Uh, I don't want to mislead you on that. You're probably going to usually be involved in some sort of competition. They also use a, a procedure called an RFQ, request for quote, and you'll see those. Those are used when the government really doesn't have a good feel yet for, for uh, what kind of response they're going to get. And so they'll put out a request for quote. Now, request for quote by its, by its own terms, by the, uh, the language of the package itself, can't result in a contract. Where an IFB, when you submit your IFB bid, if you are the low bidder and you're responsive, responsive and responsible, and we'll show you a little more, more about what that means, then the contracting officer can sign that on the spot. And you don't have a choice of saying, well, gee, I don't think I want to take it now. Uh, you submitted a bid, and uh, the contracting officer signs it. You've got a contract. 
Now, with an RFQ, the contract officer can't do that because it cannot go directly from an RFQ to a contract. What the contracting officer has to do in that case is look at all the responses that came in and, and make a choice as to who he'd like to deal with and then uh, offer that person a contract. Now, if between the time you submitted your response to the RFQ and when the contracting officer calls you and says, hey, I'm sending you a contract, if you found out that you made a mistake in, the, uh, in your calculations, you found out that your major supplier just went out of business, you found out that uh, something happened that says you, you can't perform that contract the way you offered it. You can at that point say, I'm sorry, I can't, uh, you know, I can't take it on that basis. And and he, contracting officer maybe go to somebody else, or the contracting officer may say, hey, you were good enough in the response. I liked your response. Let's negotiate and can come up with, a, with an acceptable uh, solution. The IFB, as I said, is, is used to, to buy things that are known, known quantities and known qualities, uh, whatever. And it's always going to end up in a firm fixed price contract. And when the bid's open, the lowest price is going to provided the bidder is, is responsive and responsible, uh, the lowest price is going to win. And if, I, used to, I used to go to a lot of those bid openings when I was uh, working for the Navy. And they're somewhat humorous. Because many of the bidders are convinced that the bids are going to be leaked before they're open. You submit your bid and uh, you, you bid $10 and uh, somebody's going to see that and call their buddy and say, come in at 9. So <laughs> we would see people outside the bid room. Back in those days, it was on uh, pay phones uh, calling to get the number to write into the bid package two minutes before the bids were due. And, and, this, and these IFBs, if the bid isn't in the bid box at the stated time on the stated date, you're not considered. It's, not, it's, a, it's not, a, not a bid. So they'd wait until a couple of minutes before, write in the numbers. They wouldn't have known the numbers that were going to be in that bid package until they made that phone call. They write in the numbers, walk into the bid room, drop it in the bid box, and then stand there and watch. Make <laughs> sure nobody came to those. And then, the, you know, five minutes later, two minutes later, the bid box would be open. All the bids would be read. Everybody, it's public opening, so everybody knows exactly what everybody else bid. And we'll talk some more about how you get to be considered a small business and that sort of thing. And, and some of them are, are self-certifying. If you say you're a woman-owned business, uh, you better have a woman running the business. Uh, that's it's fairly easy to substantiate if somebody challenges you. But if one of the other bidders who came in uh, second uh, suspects that you're not really a small business, then they'll challenge that. In fact, it was just a case uh, well, probably uh, two months ago now where a guy had been presenting himself as a small business for uh, a couple of years and had, had gotten a fair number of contracts based on that. Somebody finally challenged him. And he was fined a half a million dollars for, for misrepresenting himself over a number of years. Because he wasn't really. He had structured a, uh, a corporate structure so that he was down here when it really he was really the whole package. But somebody challenged him. One of the other bidders challenged him, and, and they, and they was, were successful. So at bid opening, lowest price wins, but we're going to show you what, 
what you have to do in order to be that lowest price and be responsive and responsible. And here we come to the RFP. And in these cases, the uh, the requirements are generally complex. They're not straightforward, easy to describe, easy to quantify, and so on. They're going to be situations where there have to be some evaluation factors other than price, where, where there's going to have to be discussions between the government and the bidder. And the, the best value is going to be a, a cost technical trade-off. Within government procurement, Trends come and go. I mean, you know, there's always the latest thing. Well, this is going to solve all our problems. Well, years ago, they came up with uh, incentive contracts. And we're going to really make this a, a strong incentive contract, and uh, that's going to dictate how you perform on this. Well, they, a couple of those, they put the incentives only on the technical capability of what they were buying without regard to cost. And so suddenly things that uh, had been fairly well defined uh, with regard to cost, the cost went up 30, 40, 50 percent because the contractors were trying to reach these incentives on the performance because a lot of their fee was associated with reaching those incentives. Well, then the the, uh, regulations were changed to say that any time you have a performance incentive, you also must have a cost incentive. There has to be this cost technical trade-off within those contracts. And again, any pricing structure can be used when you talk about uh, requests for proposal. They don't have to be firm fixed price. They can be cost plus uh, fixed fee, cost plus award fee, cost plus incentive fee. It can be cost sharing where you, the contractor puts up some of the cost and the government puts up the rest. They can be any, any structure as opposed to uh, firm, firm fixed price. IDIQ contracts. One of the, the benefits of having an IDIQ contract from the government standpoint is that the companies, the uh, bidders, the offerers, the contractors have all been pre-qualified. They don't have to go through the process of determining whether or not you're uh, responsible, whether or not you have the financial capability to do what it is that the contract calls for. You've been pre-qualified. So the contracting officers love that, being able to get to somebody on an IDIQ contract. They may be single or, or multiple awards. In your cases, uh, I wouldn't consider that you're ever going to have a single award for something like that. There are always going to be multiple awards. They may be competed or sole source. Depending on where you are in the uh, amount of the contract, you could end up with sole source because you're a uh, hub zone contractor. Uh, so keep that in mind. That, that if you, For instance, if you happen to have your business uh, in an area that's not a hub zone, but there's a hub zone uh, area a half a mile away, you might consider moving your business. I mean, you could have your office uh, or your, your warehouse, whatever it is your, your business uh, consists of, in a hub zone as well as where you have it now. And you get all the increasing uh, capability if you do that. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when someone uses a, uh, a government-wide GWAC, then the agency that uses it, has to pay a fee to the agency that owns the contract. And you'll find sometimes that contracting officers won't want to do that, won't want to use that GWAC contract because they don't want, they don't want to pay the fee. Uh, and so if you at that point have a GSA schedule that happens to cover something similar to that, you may be able to work them over to uh, use a GSA schedule. GWACs are usually 
multiple award as well as uh, multiple awards are averagely. And the, the multiple award contracts are almost always IDIQ. Uh, I could conceive of a situation where you might not have an IDIQ, but almost always they're going to be. Again, the similarities are uh, related to the prices in terms of, and, and the government likes to use that type because of the fact that they're, the prices and terms are already negotiated. They're already set. They don't have to go through that process each time. One of the reasons that the government started using these types of contracts, IDIQs and GSA schedules and so on, came home to me in the, uh, in the computer industry at, uh, at IBM. If we had a solicitation come out, an RFP, that we had to respond to, normally there would be a, uh, a several-month period that the government would go through to prepare that solicitation because they have to check with everybody in the agency as to what they wanted and, and what kind of characteristics these things had to have and so on. So they'd prepare a solicitation. That solicitation would then be issued, and people like IBM would have to respond to that, and we would normally have uh, you know, 90 days to respond. And we would marshal a, a large group of people to uh, make sure that we understood what the criteria were that we're going to use in the, in the evaluation, and we'd have to write to all of those, uh, and then we'd submit the bid, so already you're into probably five months into this process. Two months to prepare the solicitation, three months to bid. Then they go through an evaluation process of uh, uh, anywhere from uh, three to four or five months. Uh, and they would come down to a, and they might have discussions with, with the bidders because that's part of the reason for doing that. And they'd come down to a, a situation where they would make a, uh, make a selection. And that selection process was always very uh, elaborate. You know, with boards established, and people from outside the agency would come in and be on the board so they wouldn't be tainted by uh, prejudices and so on. And they'd make a selection, and then they would, they would announce the award. Well, everybody that wasn't selected would then protest. Because obviously, if you know, they didn't select me, they'd think this, this process was uh, faulty. <laughs> so then we'd start to the process process. Well, the protest would add on uh, anywhere from three to six months. And then another award would be made, another selection. And maybe, maybe people would have to rebid. And they used to have best and final offers. And then they would call them, those would be BAFOs, best and final offers. Then they would have BARFOs, best and really final offers. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you'd go through three or four or five of those. You're listening to The Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. Well, you know, by the time this thing got awarded, you might have uh, 20 months from the time the requirement originated until they finally got a contract. Well, in the computer world, those computers that you bid 20 months ago and yet you rebid uh, maybe six months ago, five months ago, they don't exist anymore. They're gone. So you, you won the thing on competitive prices for stuff that doesn't exist anymore, right? Well, what do you do? Well, you have to substitute stuff in. You have to substitute today's products in. Well, at that point, you're sole source. I mean, they're not going to go and get more bids again. You're going to substitute stuff in at today's prices. Well, you'll give them a discount, but they'll be at today's price. So they, anyway, the government looked at this and said, wait a minute, <laughs> this is crazy. We're going through a 20-month process 
and ending up with a sole source. That doesn't make any sense. So then they say, oh, let's go with this, uh, with this IDIQ arrangement where we have multiple awards. And each awardee then uh, is asked to bid each time that a requirement comes up. And, you know, you have an item on there for $10. And the government comes to you and says, uh, gee, I'd like to buy from you because you've been uh, doing the marketing and everything, and I know you. But, you know, uh, John Smith has got a schedule, and he's selling the same capability, the same product for uh, 950 Do you think you'd like to match that price, and then I'll buy from you? Well, sure you would. Yeah, I'll, I'll match that price. And, and the... That, that was a big. We're going to show you some of the some of the sequence that we went through to get to this type of a situation in the government contracting. Used to be when you had one of these GSA schedules, if you dropped the price, the price was dropped to everybody. In fact, it went back to the first of the year. Anybody that you'd already sold, you had to give them a refund. Well, they changed the rule. They changed the regulation to say that when you drop the price to a government agency. Then, then that doesn't affect anybody else. That just means that agency got a better deal. You, you entered in a competitive situation and you, you met the competition in that situation. One time when I was a young contract negotiator with the Navy, I went out to buy a, uh, a printing press. This is before the days of all the, the printers we have now and the computers and stuff. And they, we needed a, a printing press for use on an aircraft carrier. So we went to one of the big uh, printing press companies uh, to get a big, uh, you know, a thousand page per minute or whatever uh, printer, and it was on a GSA schedule, and we thought that the price that was on there had some fluff in it. Let me put. I won't go into the details of what we thought that, but we thought there was some fluff in there. And so I called the president of the company. It was, well, you know, a Fortune 500 company, and told him that, uh, you know, we we really didn't think we wanted to spend a hundred thousand dollars for this this printing press. We thought maybe we ought to spend uh, about 85000 That was more in line with what we had in mind. He said, well, I guess I can do that. So we uh, wrote the order for eighty-five and sent it off. Well, you know, that wasn't fair to him uh, because he didn't know the terms of that contract that said now every printer for that year was 85000 <laughs> And anyone he'd already sold, he had to give $15,000 back. I never did that again. I, I was young at the time, and I didn't really realize what I was doing to him. That I was <laughs> now the, the difference for a, uh, a multiple award contract that is not a GSA schedule is that the buying activity has to go through a what's called a DNF determination and finding. Uh, they have to justify why they want to use that contract. And part of the justification would be uh, accepting, agreeing why that the, the fee that's associated with that is something that, that they'd like to pay because it's going to save them all the costs of going through a solicitation. But they do have to go through that, uh, that uh, DNF. And then you'd have to establish a uh, memorandum of understanding with the uh, agency that owned the contract. Now, that's not an uh, impossible situation, but it is something you have to go through, and that would take a little time if you were in that situation you'd have to anticipate that you'd have to wait for that happens. They also, uh, there's another uh, technique that the government uses, a uh, request for information. And that is purely that. They, they really don't know who's out there. They don't know what capabilities are in a particular area. That would be in a, in a research and development type of, uh, arena where they would want somebody to come in and tell them what they could do in a particular area. 
there wouldn't be any normally any uh, pricing associated with that. It would be a capability type of presentation. RFQ is a request for quote, and that's that's normally used when the uh, the item is uh, fairly well uh, defined, but they don't really know who's out there and what kind of prices they're going to get. No, see, the government is required to go through a process of determining what they expect a particular procurement to cost because they have to go into the budget process and get the, get the funds set aside. So when it comes time to sign the contract, the funds are there to, to go on the contract because the government cannot sign a contract for funds that it doesn't have. You know, contracting officers can get locked up for that. That's a definite no-no. We talked about IFB, RFP. Sources sought is kind of the, another way of saying the request for information. And sometimes they'll put out a combined synopsis and solicitation. Uh, there, maybe it's, uh, they're, they're in a hurry to get responses, so they're going to put out a synopsis of what they want. And they're going to, in that same package, they're going to say, hey, give us a response, give us a bid. On the RFQ, they're looking for specific dollar bids on advertised items. Uh, again, they can't go to a contract from an RFQ, but they can certainly issue a contract following an R receive an RFQ. Now, you look at, at, at RFPs, and there's going to be all kinds of technical information in that package. There's going to be charts and pictures and specifications and so on that you're going to have to respond to. And we're going to have uh, a little more detail on that. One small uh, incident along those lines, when I worked for IBM, we had developed what we called a mail sack label reader. All the mail eventually gets put in sacks, you know, and, and then those sacks get put on a truck and they get delivered to wherever they're going. And they have a little label, and that label holder has a paper label in it telling where that sack is supposed to go, and they're on these big conveyor belts. Well, they, people would have to pick those up, and they'd have to key in information as to where that conveyor belt ought to take that sack. And so we came up with a, a way of scanning that. And then uh, the information went down the line to the conveyor, and it diverted off and dropped into the right truck. And it worked beautifully. So they, they said, oh, we're going to buy those. Post office is going to buy those. So they put out a, an RFP solicitation, and they had the specs in there and so on. And, and so we submitted our bid. And again, I was a, a very young uh, contract administrator at the time. We submitted our bid, and uh, a week went by, and I called the contracting officer and I said, you know, we, when will you be awarding us the contract? And the guy said, oh, we've already awarded it. I said, gee, I haven't seen it in the mail. He said, well, it wasn't awarded to you. <laughs> I said, what do you mean it wasn't awarded to we, we developed that product. You know, that's our product. You can't award that to somebody. Oh, we did. He awarded it to Fairchild up the road from you. What, what, what was wrong? He said, well, you, you didn't respond to one of the specification requirements. I said, which one? He said, well, there's a requirement in there that it had to sustain a drop from 15 feet. Okay, let me check. So I went back to the engineers and said, you know, he says we didn't get the award because of this 15-foot drop requirement. And did we not respond? I said, well, no, we didn't because, you know, it's never going to be on a, on a line where you're going to be able to drop it 15 feet. So we didn't respond to that. So <laughs> I went back to the contracting officer. And said, well, what was worth about this 15-foot drop. He said, well, we, we discovered in the, uh, the uh, pre-production item that the, when the operators wanted to take a break, they would throw it on the floor, the, the scanner. 
<laughs> and we measured, and that what was equivalent to a 15-foot drop. And so you had to address that. You had to be able to survive being thrown on the floor. <laughs> so that's my way of saying, when you get those technical requirements, there's a saying, you better answer them. There's a saying, answer the mail. Answer the mail. Every requirement has to be addressed. Let me tell you, any bid that I was involved with after that, every paragraph in that specification was, was checked off. Yeah, we answered that here. Yeah, we answered that here. Yeah, we answered that here. So you learn, uh, <laughs> you learn as you go through this process. The, the source of salt can be used for making a determination for making a set-aside. And then on the, uh, on the combined solicitation the synopsis, so you can, you can uh, call in and get a copy of the solicitation in those cases. And we talked about uh, indefinite quantity, firm fixed price, uh, multiple awards, time and material. We haven't talked about those yet. Time and material contract, the government is going to buy uh, services. And they're normally going to buy it by labor category. You're going to have a senior engineer, and you're going to sell that senior engineer for $100 an hour. The government's going to come out and buy 100 hours. Well, at the end of having furnished 100 hours, your contractual requirement has ended. You don't have to continue working, even if the job hasn't been finished. Uh, under a time material contract, your only requirement is to provide the time that has been contracted for. Now, it's going to be at a fixed rate for that, that uh, particular individual, that particular labor category. That's not to say that there can't be situations where they would come to you and say, hey, I want to buy 100 hours, and gee, that price you have in there is for a price of one, so why don't you give me a, uh, a fixed price for a whole 100? And you might be willing to do that, and that's fine. But at the, at the conclusion of having done the 100 hours, you're still finished. If they want you to continue working, they have to buy more hours. It's inherent in a time and material contract. Now, there are going to be materials in there, too. Now, the, the, the reason that you need to focus in on that is that the materials are at no profit. The materials come through just at cost. So if you have to do travel, if you have to provide... Uh, materials uh, for the engineer to work with and so on, then those are at cost. You don't get any profit on those. And all of that has to be documented in your cost accounting system. So if you're going to be in a situation where you're going to take a time and material contract, then you have to have an acceptable cost accounting system. And there's a lot of those on the marketplace. They're not, not hard to find. Cost plus fee. You hear all kinds of horror stories about uh, how those get overrun and, and you know they, they go on and on and waste the government money and so on. They're normally used in situations where you can't estimate up front what something's going to cost. I mean, if you're going to build a, uh, a space shuttle, you know, there's no way you're going to be able to estimate how much that's going to cost. And that space shuttle was built on a cost plus contract. Now, the fee, you know, the, you, you, you would hear a lot of people say that the fee is a percentage of the cost. It isn't really. The fee is fixed for that project. And so if you had a, uh, if you had a project that the estimated was going to cost $100 and you negotiated a, uh, uh, a fee of $10 to do that job, if the cost for that job became $200, 
the fee would still be $10. The fee doesn't go up as the cost goes up. It's a fixed fee. Now, and there are other uh, types of, of cost plus contracts. There's cost plus incentive fees, and there's the cost plus award fees and so on, all of which have to have a cost incentive. So you hear a lot of, a lot of words about performance contracting today. Well, that's another word for incentive contracting. Uh, you know, we got a new group of people that came in and said, let's really zero in on performance, so we'll call it performance contracting. But it's really incentive contracting. The terminology changes with uh, <laughs> about every 10 years. You know, somebody thinks of a better way to do something, thinks they think of a better way. Okay, the Air Force wants the contract to provide all base operation services. That's a pretty uh, broad spectrum of services, isn't it? You might, well, they, 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 if you were bidding that, you might be interested in a uh, time and material contract because you have no idea, no way to estimate what it is you're going to have to do to provide all of those uh, base operation services. So also, then you come down to the second one. How does how does the Air Force that wants to do that? How do they come up with who's going to do it? They might use one of the RFI routes, right, to see who's out there in the marketplace. Who could we, who could we expect to bid on something like this? Who should we be soliciting? Are there small businesses that could do this? And if there are and, and uh, they have the capability that we're looking for, then, you know, we could make this a set-aside. Looking for raincoats. Cut dried item, right? You don't need to have any uh, sophisticated RFP process or RFI or any of that sort of thing. You can go out with an IFB and buy those. In fact, you might even go to a GSA schedule that will have raincoats that you just buy off that schedule. Language translation. That's going to be on a uh, got to be on a time and materials basis too. I mean, you you, you don't want to pay somebody to sit around and wait while you come up come up with something for them to translate. You want them to come on board when you have something to translate. So you do a time and material contract for that. And the State Department would want those prices locked in. So they'd want an, uh, an IDIQ contract with the prices already established. You know, if we, if we understand what the government buys, then we can zero in on what we sell or what we would like to sell how we can tweak what it is that we sell to, uh, to correspond with what the government is buying. And you're going to see all kinds of different solicitations. And uh, we're going to show you that, that how to go through those solicitations and determine. I mean, the, the solicitations can be, you know, can be 1,000 pages. can be 1,500 pages. It can be 150 pages. It can be tremendous documents. We're going to show you how to go down through those documents and pick out the parts that you have to be very, very conversant with and have to respond to. Because obviously a lot of it's boilerplate. You know, you look at government uh, contracting. You know, we have a regulation that's uh, yay thick. Uh, those were all written because somebody took advantage. Somebody took advantage of the government. And so the regulation was written to stop that from happening uh, with the next contract that was awarded. And so those uh, uh, regulations then find their way into clauses, contract clauses. And 90% of those are, are not of any concern to most straightforward businesses because you're not going to do the things that are prohibited by those clauses anyway. But somebody did at one point. 
somebody took advantage, and so they wrote a cause to uh, prevent it. Well, that is a series of the first section that we're doing. It's called Defining the Scope, is understanding the terminology that the government uses, uh, local, state, and federal government uses, and looking at a contract. That gives you a basis to start from. So tomorrow we're going to go and expand from that and go into another topic uh, of it. And we're going to go explore this a little bit more far, uh, further, what you need to do in order to get a contract. So, again, you can uh, download this uh, episode on iTunes on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, you can get that information from there. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, just go ahead and shoot us an email, and we can reach out to you at info at thecorebusinessshow.com. And tomorrow we're going to be taking a look at uh, the next part of this is laying your groundwork, what you need to do to set yourself, set your business up in order to get awarded a contract. You're listening to The Core Business Show. I'm Tim J.K., your host. It's been a pleasure of uh, serving you today. We're going to close out with our show and look forward to talking to you later. Everybody, thank you for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. For more information about equipment financing and asset-based loans, visit our website, applecapitalgroup.com. That's applecapitalgroup.com. Or call us at 866-611-7457. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And remember, you can always get to the core via iTunes. You'll find all our previous episodes there. And thanks again for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet.